on today's episode of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, number 138, Mike Caulfield prescribes a new digital literacy. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, Mike Caulfield, is currently the Director of Blended and Networked Learning at Washington State University, Vancouver. He's also the editor of the New Horizons column for the Educause Review, and he was recently appointed the first Civic Fellow of AASCU's American Democracy Project. He has worked to construct collaborative net-enabled learning environments for almost 20 years. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks. Mike, when I was reading your bio, your title struck me a bit. Director of Blended and Networked Learning at Washington State University. Could you talk a little bit about the networked learning part of it and when that entered into your role there and some of the things that sort of show up there that don't typically show up with people that don't have that in their title or their responsibilities? Yeah, sure. So um, it's been in the title uh, from the beginning. Uh, One of the things that I benefited from here was that uh, they were putting together a new position. And so we had... We had the option to shape the title, and initially the term was going to be uh, just you know, director of blended learning. But you know, I mean, our, our aspirations are that um, it's not just that we're mixing, say, you know, a bit of Blackboard with a bit of face-to-face. It's actually that we're using the web uh, in new ways that uh, help our students to become, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it you know, connectivist, you know, little mini connectivists running around or um, networked learners or uh, people that use their PLN, however you want to phrase it. We want students uh, to have experiences which don't only blend the digital and the face-to-face, but also introduce them to this idea of, of, of learning in the context uh, of a network like the World Wide Web. You know, how, how that comes in on a, on a day-to-day basis, you know, the truth is, I think like a lot of people in my position, we'd love it if every person that walked in the door said, you know, teach me more about this networked learning. You know, in reality, what, what we're able to do is we're able to pick a, um, you know, a, a few boutique projects that we, we, we push through uh, each semester and try to push the boundaries of what we do in in uh, in a classroom around these uh, technologies. And that may be, you know, anything from we had a graduate project where we had students doing an annotated bibliography of public policy works and news items using hypothesis. Mm. That was a fun one. Uh, so, you know, these sorts of things are, are stuff that, that we try and we learn from it and we try to come up with uh, better opportunities next time around. 
I really appreciate when you talk about that. I know that even just being the person who does these interviews, I get overwhelmed sometimes thinking I can't, I couldn't possibly keep up with all the ideas. But then just that we're creating spaces in our own lives and our own careers, and then trying to help our institutions do that too, where if we leave ourselves a little bit of margin for that experimentation, just how that can then almost cascade throughout the organization where everyone can be where they are, but be stretching themselves. So I love that inspiration you provide. And I'm going to really look forward to getting if whatever links you have for those, we'll put them in the show notes too. So people can go sure. explore and get inspired. There was one other thing that popped out in your bio before we actually talk about what we came here to talk about today. Okay. Like we don't have enough on our plates. So tell me about this civic fellow of the AASCU's American Democracy Project. That sounded really intriguing to me as well. Yeah, so that's that's new. It's a new position. Uh, the American Democracy Project uh, tries to set up educational experiences, civic engagement experiences at the higher education level, and it tries to do that, you know, through through a variety of initiatives, right? So, for for example, experiential learning is a big piece of what they do, and service learning is a big piece of what they do, and organizing. Uh, activities around Constitution Day, you know, uh, these sort of these, you know, democracy walls you see popping up on campus where various students are able to write their opinions about this or that and uh, try to have a dialogue. So they do a lot of different things and they have a variety of different projects uh, that they pursue. A lot of those projects are very big. They have multiple schools in a formal organizational structure pursuing them. And one of the things that they've wanted to do for a while is, as well as doing some of those bigger projects uh, around some bigger ideas, uh, they wanted to have an ability to do smaller, more agile projects. So this idea of the civic fellow is the idea that they would pick uh, somebody on a on a regular basis uh, who could put together uh, maybe a smaller, more agile project around a defined idea. And just given, you know, some of the concern around digital polarization and fake news and, and some of these issues around the election, they offered me a chance to, to, to be that first civic fellow. Well, you brought up our topic for today, which is digital literacy. And I do like to admit you know, just right up front that I am ex so excited to be talking to you, Mike, but also completely terrified in the sense of this is really hard work that you are proposing. And I'm going to start out right out of the gate. You, you wrote a blog post, which is going to be basically the frame for our conversation today. And the title of it is, Yes, Digital Literacy, But Which One? And one of the first things you tell us is that most of the time when we, and I'm going to include myself very much in this, when I think about digital or information literacy skills until I read your article, I did, did tend to think of it as a skill that would be pretty universal, that if we could you know, take everyone across multiple disciplines and, and just raise the bar in this area that we would be getting our jobs done. And I think that you are here to take me down on that one and take the rest of us <laughs> down. So I love this. Talk, talk to me in the beginning, just hear about how have we been wrong when we see it as a separate skill from domain knowledge? Yeah. So, I mean, there's multiple intersecting issues here and, and we could drill down on, on any one of them, but we can start from 
what we do now, which is, and I say, when I say what we do now, I, I do know that some people read my post and said, well, that's not what we do. Mm-hmm. And and that's true. Like, but, but what brought with the broad practice of information literacy, you know, across the majority of schools uh, looks something like uh, the stuff I talk about in that post, like the so-called crap test or rad cab or cars or some of these uh, acronyms where, uh, you know, we have a student and they look at a page or they look at a tweet or they look at, um, uh, you know, a document uh, or journal or something of that nature. And they have a list of questions to ask. Usually there's, there's, you know, four to six big questions they ask about accuracy and relevance and, and these sorts of things. And usually under each of those, there's like, uh, you know, there's six or seven uh, sub questions. So you know, you have all these questions that you're going to ask this this article, and the idea is that students will sort of internalize these these uh, higher abstract ideas, um, and when they look at a page that's clearly to us um, a page that's not very trustworthy or a page that's that's not um, you know, particularly suited to what they're trying to uh, prove or establish or figure out, that this this understanding of these lo- these larger abstract uh, issues, um, you know, will be so you know ingrained in them that they'll just see, oh, well, this is this is not a trustworthy page, uh, or this is a fact I should check. In uh, in in reality, that that doesn't seem to happen, um, and. Uh, I, I actually got contacted uh, after I wrote this by uh, Sam Weinberg, who um, has been in the news with some of his uh, Stanford work on this issue of digital literacy. And he's been in this area for, you know, well over a decade and a half. And uh, and what they found is that, again, these these sort of very broad general questions never actually translate into real world capabilities uh, of students. That what we actually use when we evaluate information, you know, are a lot of small, you know, tricks, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, these can be uh, little things that we know, as I say in the article, or they can be little things that we know how to do. Uh, but it's those it's those smaller things that really uh, give us an, an immediate uh, way to assess what's in, what's in front of us. And those are the things that um, that we, we generally don't teach students. One of the examples that you have in the blog post that you wrote, and again, to anyone listening, we'll have links to all of this in the show notes so you can go check it out because this is a picture, so we have to close our eyes. You have five images of five different websites and you put forth the challenge that says, okay, discern which one of these sources was the most careful with the facts. And I'm going to admit, I mean, <laughs> I was reading late at night. That's my excuse. But I, I started yeah. to look for a lens very similar to the lenses that you described before. So I'm looking for trying to figure out who is this. And that wasn't necessarily obvious in, in the images. And then I'm even looking at, you know, the web design. Oh, do you think that, the, you know, this one looks more professional? The top one looked really, uh, it was very text-based. So I thought, hmm, is that where he's going for? And and then I just laugh because when you keep reading, you go through a whole lens of some of the clues that stood out to you. And you yeah. talked about this. One of the images has a big W circled in the red flag. 
And I had no idea what this was. I mean, this, this was not something that stood out to me. But to you, you said, ah, Nazis, Nazi warning, <laughs> the bells are going off. And then there was another one. You saw the word Illuminati, and that got you thinking about New World or- Order. It must be, you know, a conspiracy site. Yeah, yeah. And, and you had all these clues that, for the most part, were completely not noticeable to me. So just a perfect example to, I don't have the same domain knowledge that you had for these warning bells. And therefore, even if I have my acronym of CRAP or <laughs> RADCAB or what have you, it's not going to do me any good. Because I'm still not going to know the the clues that stood out to you. Would you talk a little bit about the tree octopus one too? That was another one that comes up a lot. So let's 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 go back to something you said though, because I think something you said is 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 interesting here. Um, uh, You know, so I I go off of the cues that I know from my domain knowledge, and I I I was an online political organizer, you know, way back uh, about uh, ten years back, uh, created a online uh, political activist site, 5,000 members. Um, they got national attention and, and we, had a, we had a lot of people sharing a lot of information on that site. And so I, I've been immersed in political, online political culture for a, a long time. So the things that I'm gonna notice there, like, oh, Illuminati site, this is, this is a new world order conspiracy, um, up, you know, Nazis, uh, you know, those are not gonna necessarily going to be the things that, that you're going to notice. But you, you said something there that, that was dismissive, but, but I think overly so, which is you said, well, you're, you're kind of looking at, you know, what is the, you know, what is the uh, quality of the layout of the graphic, uh, the, the um, graphic design of the site. And I think sometimes we dismiss that, right? Mm-hmm. We say, well, you know, you can't really. But the truth is, if you are trying to figure out very quickly you know, do I trust this site or not? Um, that is one of the things you might want to look at. And, and the, one of the reasons why you might want to look at this as just one of many factors, you know, is that, you know, an amount of, an amount of uh, care and an amount of money that goes into the site could show that the site um, is careful in other ways, right? Could show that the site, you know, has a, has a following uh, that is substantial enough that they work to keep it. It could also be a completely horrible site and still be graphically, uh, you know, stunning. So this is not to say that you're proving one thing or another, but what we are looking to do is we are looking to, uh, if you're familiar with Kahneman's system one and system two, we're, we're looking to actually inform some of those system one feelings, those mm-hmm. gut instinct feelings that, that, that students have, because ultimately when you're scrolling through 10, 20, 30, 40 of these things, you know, in a in a single pull to refresh on Twitter or Facebook or something like that. Uh, if you haven't developed an instinct for these things, um, you, you're gonna, you know, you, you're gonna you're gonna struggle, right? So we're looking for ways, uh, whether it's domain knowledge, whether it's the background of the politics of these this variety of sites that's that sites that's out there, or you know, I don't know what your background is, but your ability to recognize you know, that that certain site designs are a little more slipshod. Mm-hmm. We're looking for ways that people developed an instinct about these things because once they get that instinct and once something in them says, oh, well, hold on here, danger, you know, then they can start to apply what Kahneman calls system two, right? That that reasoned, rationed, step-by-step uh, rationality we, we rely on, the analytical uh, side of what we do. But if we're not having that gut feeling, 
uh, when we first look at it, we're never actually going to get to the rationality. And it's actually that that's the place where most people fail, right? It's, it's not, I mean, there are, we, we'll talk in a minute, I suppose, about strategies that people have to uh, deal with these, these sorts of things. But the place that most people fail is they don't even think about it, right? Mm-hmm. They don't even, they don't even hear the warning bells, you know, so there's 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 these two sort of broad issues. The one thing is, you know, do you hear like the three alarm fire going off about this site, um, and and do you recognize that and stop? Um, and then there's having you know heard that three alarm fire, uh, do you have the tools to investigate it? Right? Do you have the tools to to you know pick it apart and figure out? Okay, well, is this is this something trustworthy or not, right? And both halves of those are useful. M- almost everything that we do in information literacy doesn't address that first part, though. Uh, and so we get we get a bunch of people that may actually have, you know, higher abstract reasoning skills, but are but are, are never actually going to utilize them on the things that scroll past them in their feed. Part of what I heard you saying too is that well, maybe I think I think you implied it is that part of it is we have to care. Because the, oh, yeah. the system one is is and for anyone he's he's the wonderful book that talks about this is thinking fast and slow, and the system one is just that instant without you know that's that's my click word that's my my yeah. conditioned response. But in order to change that to better my own digital literacy, I have to care first. I can recall around Martin Luther King Day three four five years ago something like that. I saw a quote on Facebook and oh it's just so powerful click were you know for uh, share and it turned out that was not something that was said by him and i still remember so vividly being so disappointed in myself that now i am trained never share quote <laughs> no matter how beautiful the graphics are or how much it seems like something that martin luther king would have shared unless you go and check it take well, the, take in, the in, in, Particular, in particular, whenever you say, "Oh, that quote is perfect," that's precisely the time that you should stop, mm-hmm. right, and and look at it. So, uh, you know, I'm have I checked every quote that I've retweeted in the past, you know, year? I'm not sure I have, but uh, you know, I have developed a, at least a um, uh, a reflex of if I think a, a quote is is perfect, right? If a, if a quote is just, you know, like this is the quote I've been looking for. Uh, to express myself, that's actually when I get most suspicious. And the reason why I get most suspicious about that is, you know, there's a, you know, perfect quotes are viral, right? Mm -hmm. Virality is something that that people seek to achieve. And so, you know, when I see a quote that's almost looks like it's designed to go viral, you know, that's precisely the quote that we should check, right? Because that's precisely the sort of quote that somebody uh, would, would, would design as, as a hoax or as, clickbait or, or something or something like that. And so part of it is, yeah, rewiring yourself. Um, you know, if, if there's a quote, you know, about, you know, I don't know, um, you know, Roman Jakobson, you know, Roman Jakobson's, you know, uh, poetic function from his, you know, 1963 speech, right? I'm not so worried. <laughs> I'm not so worried about that because that's that's not something that's sort of been designed to punch all my emotional buttons, right? Whereas if if I do look at something and I feel like an emotional charge o- over it, I, I think that's the place where where you most have to slow down because um, again, you just got to be suspicious of those things. 
There was a wonderful episode of the podcast Planet Money, and it starts out by the the author sharing that a few days before the election, you know, we start getting all these thousands of people's things in our Facebook feeds and that there was the story there. It was vivid, filled with intriguing details. And I'm reading now, there's a photo of a burning house, firemen rushing in. The headline read, quote, FBI agent suspected in Hillary email leaks found dead an apparent murder-suicide. And this episode goes through, and they actually were able to track down the individual who made quite a bit of money off of authoring fake news. And the guy was pretty hard to find, but once they found him, he, I think, decided that his, I guess he was willing to share his story. And it just is a, a really, really fascinating look at some of the ways that people have been able to generate considerable income off of taking advantage of our system one responses and us not having a very good digital literacy. I know there's one that you can share with us that that comes up frequently when talking about digital literacy, the tree octopus. Could you tell us that story? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is a great, I mean, if you put these two things together, the, uh, the, the the burning house with the murder suicide of the FBI agent next to the tree octopus you start to understand like how ill formed our activities are uh, for for students so there, there's a site this hoax site called the you know save the tree octopus and and it's uh, this fake site about this fake animal called the, the tree octopus which uh, looks just like a little mini octopus but it supposedly lives in trees in the Pacific Northwest. You know, and so so teachers uh, send their students. It's usually used in the K twelve uh, um, area, but it's sometimes used in higher education as well. Teachers send their students to this, and they say, "Hey, is this real or is this or is this fake?" Right? Uh, and they go through the you know they go through RADCAB. They say, you know, is this relevant? You know, is it accurate? Is it recently updated? You know, uh, all these all these uh, these sorts of questions. Or they go through. Uh, you know, crap, and they say, you know, well, is it credible? And is you know, is it, uh, um, you know, is you know, what's the purpose of it? And you know, is there bias and so forth? Um, and at the end of it, you know, an awful lot of them. In fact, in a lot of studies, the at least two studies I've read, the majority of students think it's real. You know, even after sitting there with these questions right in front of them. And in going through the questions, it's like, well, yeah, it's updated. It was updated just a couple days ago. Uh, you know, uh, is it relevant? Yeah, we want to know about the tree octopus. Uh, does it seem to be, you know, authoritative? Well, it links to something called the Cephalopod News Organization or something. Um, and so, you know, they, they do all they do all these things around information literacy. Um, and and we're like, well, how can how can this happen? You know, how can they? believe in this tree octopus. Well, it's interesting because we're, we're, we're developing that opinion of their research, having never actually looked at this uh, page in this way or um, done the, the thing that we react to is, is the fact that, um, you know, if, if, if there was a, a evolutionary separation between, you know, you know, an octopus in the ocean and something that came on land that was amphibious, you know, over time, you would expect these two things to look, you know, vastly different, right? We don't have a bunch of fish with feet um, walking around on land. You know, that's not how evolution tends to work, right? You know, you tend the form to the environment. So the idea that there's this, uh, you know, precise replica of an octopus hanging around in Pacific Northwest 
trees is just ridiculous, right? And it, but we say, oh, well, we step back and we say, oh, well, that's not information literacy, right? That's not an information literacy approach to it. And it's like, yes, it is. Of course it is. Uh, you know, information literacy is applying what you already know to new information that's coming in. And yet we, we get back and we abstract it into these, this set of rules that we believe that we can use without having any domain knowledge about, um, about these things that we're looking at, right? Without having any sense of, uh, you know, who the, um, who the authorities in this area are or what we expect evolution to look like. And, and then we're surprised when people make just, you know, completely ridiculous um, uh, decisions on whether something's uh, authentic uh, or not. But, but they're making it based on, you know, we don't, you know, after a certain amount of time, you have to look at that and you say, well, you know, are the students you know, just particularly dumb in every study after study? Or could it be that these questions are not really that useful uh, for figuring these things out? You know, so the the murder-suicide is an interesting one uh, as well, right? So you have this person uh, who puts up this murder-suicide thing. His original work was he used to put up what he thought were kind of satirical sites, right? Uh, and so, but he he started to notice he got a, when he put up these sensational headlines that were just sort of bad satire that people didn't recognize it was satire. I think partially because he he wasn't a particularly good satirist. But then when he put the stuff up, people people uh, people came and they clicked on it, and you know he made a lot of money. Now, how do we know that you know there's there's um, you know that there wasn't really this murder suicide and and so forth. Well, you know, th- th- that's a little harder. The site in that case was labeled the Denver Guardian. Um, it looked like uh, a, a news site. Um, but one of the things you should recognize is, wow, this is actually a pretty extraordinary claim, right? I mean, it's not, it's not precisely the tree octopus, but, you know, saying that one of the candidates has, or implying one of the candidates has colluded uh, in the possible murder of an FBI agent and his wife, that's pretty big news. So you, you might want to slow down a little uh, before you repost that, right? Now, if you did slow down a little, uh, what you would find out is it, as you clicked around on that site, you just go to that site and look at something other than that page and you click any other, any other section of that site. It looks like there's a bunch of sections uh, on that site. In fact, this is really the this is the only news story on the site, right? So all you had to do, right, was slow down and then say, well, let me just see what else is on this site. Is this really a local site? But people didn't slow down. Well, you know, why didn't people why didn't people slow down? You know, for whatever reason, over time, uh, they've become they they've become so used to some of this conspiracy theory in I think in their in their feed um, that this you know they they were kind of like the students with the the tree octopus right they they don't have enough sort of uh, grounding uh, in the reality of this that they're going to stop and they're gonna and they're gonna look at this right I mean I, I know I know that sounds harsh but but I, I I'm not I'm not I'm not blaming necessarily people that. Uh, reposted that story. Uh, I think what I'm saying is that the the problem with people that reposted that story wasn't necessarily 
that they didn't go and do rad cab or they didn't go and do crap on the story. The big problem with that story is that, you know, they, they, their alarm bells should have been going off about the level and size and scope of this story. Um, and the, it, it didn't, or it didn't in the right way, right? So it's, again, it's, it's that level of, of gut instinct. Now, if you understand that there are people out there trying to manipulate you and that there's this universe of fake sites and that they're all looking for, you know, your clicks so they can serve you ads um, and they're all fighting for these headlines, if you understand that and you um, look at this, then maybe your gut reaction is, oh, this is a site trying to get me to click on it, right? Uh, and once you have that, you can kind of work with that. And you can, again, go into this system two behavior. But if you don't have that, you know, you're like the students without any understanding of evolution. This just seems like a completely plausible thing. Sure, there's a tree octopus up there. And yeah, you know, one of the major candidates just, you know, murdered two people over an email server issue. You know, so, so, we, we have to look at these issues and we have to um, you, we have to kind of de-abstract some of this some of this stuff and and I'm not again I'm not saying that the well you just have to have this encyclopedic knowledge of politics and evolution and so forth to to um, uh, to debunk these things or to you know, uh, work effectively on the web but I am saying that you you do if you don't understand that there are fake sites out there that are looking to do this uh, to to get you to uh, come to them and to promote them, um, that you may maybe are going to have the wrong gut reaction to seeing a headline like that, right? I think over time uh, we can get our students when they see a headline like that to to really react uh, in a way that is not cynical. Um, but, you know, has the appropriate level of reservation uh, around it. One of the common responses that I've seen on Facebook, for example, when someone will correct someone else, you know, the classic, I'm posting this message on my status to let Facebook know that I own all my photos and I have copies. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. That was the classic thing. Someone goes, go, links to the Snopes article that, yeah. that debunks that myth. And then there isn't really the response that I ever see of, oh, my goodness, like me with the MLK quote, I was so embarrassed and corrected it and disciplined myself to always go system two on any quotes because I'm overly, you know, cautious on that as I should be, you know, I, I, I want to be a source of reliable information as a professor, and then just as a person as a human being to contribute to a better society. How do we get our students? How do we get our peers? How do we increase the care to want to be digitally literate. Yeah, and, and how do we how do we negotiate that tricky social situation too, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because um, that's one of that's one of the biggest problems. So so you know, first things first, we we know from research, it's Facebook sponsored research, but it it is it is research <laughs> uh, across you know um, you know millions of articles or whatever that uh, when people post a Snopes link in a Facebook post thread um, that the story has, has a much higher percentage chance of coming down, right? So, so people actually do react uh, to the Snopes link often with taking the story down and that, that actually does uh, help prevent the spread 
uh, of the story. And I, I think the same thing ends up being true of um, PolitiFact and some of these other things. Hmm. I'm um, so glad although, to hear that. I had no idea. Sorry for interrupting you, but I'm no, like, no, no. hooray, so, this so, is great news. So when you do when you do link the Snopes article, uh, you know, the research says uh, across an insane amount of interactions that you are helping. You are oh, helping stop the spread of this. There's a, there's a bigger chance that this, this person will take it down. Now, that chance is not 100%, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure it nears 100%, right? But there's a statistically, you know, there's a there's a larger chance, both in terms of statistical significance, because it's across a million or whatever interactions, but also because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly large effect size. So when we look at, when we look at that behavior, that behavior is actually what we want to promote. We want to promote people linking to the Snopes page, linking to the PolitiFact page. And we want people to feel invited to do that. But you're right. I mean, socially, it's it's very hard to do that. And very often, the person that's posting the thing, you know, they found the Martin Luther King quote, and they liked what it expressed, and they mm-hmm. p- posted it to express it. And to a certain extent, you know, part of them just reacts, well, I don't even care if Martin Luther King said it. That's not the point. Yeah, yeah. The point is that this is this quote is true. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, but it kind of is the point, right? I mean, because if it wasn't the point, there wouldn't be a picture of Martin Luther King behind it. And also just out of respect to Martin Luther King and his work, we shouldn't be like, you know, just you know, routinely trashing his history with things he didn't say. Um, so, you know, how do we go about that? And how do we create the social environment that actually tolerates this behavior? I think, again, this is a place where education can help. Um, I think if we all see ourselves in this way, if we all see ourselves engaged in this, um, in this effort to, to try to, um, you know, keep our, our news feeds, you know, clean of, of the sort of, garbage that that can can you know invade them um i think we're less likely to react negatively to that i mean we are embarrassed but uh we do have to we do have to do that one of the things that that people should do uh you know is people should remember that you don't have to out people publicly if you're on facebook and you can uh you know dm that uh use messenger to get a person that message you know that's probably the better thing allow the person to save face and take it down um and take it down themselves i will say one other thing which is that i believe organizations like snopes and like uh you know politifact or fact check or or these various or side check is another one i think they perform a really important function in this in that Certainly, they're much maligned, and people contest whether they're as objective as we would we would like. Everybody has a problem with at least one Politifact ruling. I'm sure if you followed it for any time. But what they do give us is they give us a way to have those conversations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to start those conversations and 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 move it beyond. You know, if you just say, "I don't think Martin Luther King said that," and here. Are, 18 links to that you can kind of piece together and analyze yourself to see that probably once you, you know, work this all out, he didn't say that. Well, now it's just you and me arguing, right? I mean, that, and that's, that's going to put us in the wrong mode. I, I do think that these sites like Snopes and like PolitiFact um, are going to play an increasingly important role uh, in, in this because they give us a way to kind of depersonalize that conversation between us. And, and get into our analytical mode 
uh, instead of our fighting mode. Um, and so uh, one of the things I'm excited about is, uh, you know, as a civic fellow, we're, we're putting together a student-powered Snopes. This is the idea, at least, that students will uh, find different claims around the internet and, and work in a Snopes-like fashion uh, to, you know, either prove them or debunk them. Uh, and again, the idea is not that you're going to convince 100% of the people that read your article on this or that claim. Uh, the idea is that by pulling all that information together and, and making an attempt to get above the rhetorical into something that is is more um, descriptive, that you're giving people resources to help their friends, their peers, their colleagues uh, be better uh, netizens as well. Right, and so, so again, these these sites act as the starting points of the conversations that we should have, and I actually think there's got to be a lot more of them. I would like to see a whole universe of these sites. I'd like to see more um, ones that that zone in on a particular uh, a particular domain, the way that uh, Politifact, I suppose, checks politics. But there's so many other claims out there, whether they're health claims or uh, claims about science or claims about the economy that really need the attention of people that maybe have some domain knowledge in that area. Yeah. Well, this is the point in the show when we're going to do recommendations and I'm going to give mine first, but also just tell you that there were a couple of things that you mentioned in your blog post that we could also use that we didn't have time to get to, but if you wanted to recommend some of those, but of course people need to go read. Okay. Too, yeah. so. uh, I'm going to recommend actually a this American life episode that, that came out and was actually a repeat from one or the, you know, sometimes they'll switch out a story or two. It's from December 16th, 2016. And I'm going to play just the very beginning. And I want to warn people with, you know, sensitivities about things that we tell our children, because this one is uh, some literacy that sometimes uh, we, we ha have our, our children lack. So here's a little uh, clip from This American Life, Kid Logic. Rebecca remembers exactly when she learned the astonishing truth. She was in second grade, and ran into her best friend Rachel at school one day. And she pulled me aside and, and said, you know, last night, I, you know, I lost a tooth. And I woke up while the tooth fairy was putting the money under my pillow. And guess who the tooth fairy was? I said, oh, my God, who was it? I, I have to know. And she said, my dad. My dad is the tooth fairy. And I remember running home after school and telling my mom, mom... I know who the Tooth Fairy is, and declaring it as if I had grown up, that I, I knew who, who the Tooth Fairy was. And she said, oh, well, who is the Tooth Fairy? And I turned to her and I said, Rachel's dad is the Tooth Fairy. Ronnie Loberfeld is the Tooth Fairy. That's just the beginning. You've got to go to listen to more of it. It's a wonderful episode of kids who have misunderstood things. And I will admit that I tend to play it pretty safe on this show. I don't say a lot of controversial things, but here goes. Just here's my warning. 
My husband and I do not plan on telling our children that there is such a thing as a tooth fairy. And I apologize if that offends you, but it's one of those things that we like to think about with our kids that when we tell them things like this, and again, we're not going to judge any of you who that's your thing, but for us, we just, we want to sort of contribute to their own literacy and thinking. And I'm having fun with my son who's four and a half now, just talking to him about what is real and what is imagined and what is symbolic and just trying to teach him what those things mean. And he's pretty darn good at discerning those things at a young age. And I think one of the things is that we just uh, watch out to any parts that we as parents might be doing to contribute to that. But anyway, even if you don't agree and you want to tell your kids that there's such a thing as a tooth fairy (laughs) in this world, it's still a really fun episode to listen to. And I just found myself smiling so much that my cheeks hurt. So that's my recommendation for today. And I'm going to pass it over to you, Mike. Well, I, you know, the, the tooth fairy thing, I don't remember being shocked finding out my parents were, were the tooth fairy. I remember being shocked that my my mom had kept all the teeth. They were like, you know, like a little jar. <laughs> and like, you know, and, you know, and like, so, so this just seemed to me, this was like, I don't know, this seemed like Roman or something, mm-hmm. just like a jar of teeth. But, you know, her, her feeling was, well, it just seemed weird to throw them away, you know? And I was like, well, you know, I, I yeah, the tooth fairy thing, that, you know, the fact you guys are the tooth fairy, that's not freaking me out. No, the, the jar... <laughs> The jar of baby <laughs> teeth in our cupboard, though that's that's a little that's a little dumber, you know. So uh, you know, might might want to back off of that. It's funny that you bring that up because, of course, it's always as a parent you're thinking about things in advance, often of when they actually happen. But this is something I didn't even think about. What do you do with those? Yeah, teeth? what do you do with the do with the teeth? Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. So in any case, yeah. But for, for folks out there, whether whether you you know engage in tooth fairyism or not, you know that's great. But like, don't. Don't keep a jar of teeth in the medic- medicine cabinet. That's just freaky. My parents do search and rescue with their dogs. And I'm <laughs> laughing because as I'm saying this to you, I'm realizing what you do with them is you give them to your parents because they use them as scent articles for the dogs as they go out to find oh, no. <laughs> so, Yeah, that's what oh, you that's do with grim. the teeth. I know it's really, <laughs> they, really uh, this, this is another embarrassing confession, then I'll stop. Um, for Easter many years, I wouldn't see my parents because they would be doing cadaver Easter egg hunts with the dogs. <laughs> no. There's a synthetic scent for dead body smell and they'd put it inside easter eggs and the dogs would go find them (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) i'm wondering if our i feel feel like believing the tooth fairy was not the worst of your childhood issues (laughs) yes perhaps (laughs) i think i think there's a whole other universe of things to work out yes there's a lot we're unpacking on this episode Uh, so, uh, you know, my recommendation, my recommendation, I think, uh, this is a new find of mine, the verification handbook. This mm. is, uh, if you go to verificationhandbook.com, uh, the European center for journalism, something like that, uh, put out this handbook and what it is, is it's a handbook for journalists that when news breaks and there's sources online, right? So a video pops up that supposedly, you know, a video of uh, some incident that happened at a rally or something like that, uh, or a news story is popping up or people on Twitter are talking about uh, an earthquake or something like that. Um, how do you quickly verify uh, the, the, the stuff that comes to you through your feed uh, in, the, in the digital age, right? And what I love about the verification handbook is it's just so specific about about the stuff. So this is like this is the the polar opposite of uh, you know the the crap 
uh, thing that people use with info literacy or the um, RADCAB or CARS or any of these other models. Because you'll look in this book and it will say, okay, you have a video. It takes place at a certain time. Here's how you find out what the weather was in that place at that time so you can determine, you know, whether the weather in the video matches what you should be seeing, right? So that's just that's just one thing, you know. Uh, if if you, um, you know, you know, here's, uh, you know, it goes through things like using uh, EchoSec, using you know Google Street View to verify locations. You know, is you know if someone says that there is this uh, event that happened at this or that um, location in you know Ridgefield, Washington, well you know, here's one thing, does that location actually exist, you know, and using Google Maps to do that. And it goes through, it just comes up with so many neat tricks of the trade that I hadn't really thought about. And in, in a world where we're all kind of forced to be our own fact checkers, I just think it's an incredibly neat resource. I also think that in comparison to some of these other higher level approaches, it's just fun. <laughs> you know, it's just fun that you 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 look at this and you're like, I'm going to find out if the weather in this video matches the weather, um, the weather that we know was happening at that place in that time. It feels like uh, detective work. It feels like it feels a bit like a game. Uh, and so, verificationhandbook.com, full of of all these uh, neat little tricks uh, that the pros use, uh, and that you can use on the stuff that you see in your own feed. Oh, it looks so good. I can tell I'm going to be getting lost in there in a good way in the coming weeks to really try to boost mine up. I just appreciate so much you spending your time with us today and especially just the way in which you speak about this. Yes, we need to help our students get better at this, but I'm really hearing such a voice from you that we're all, it's a process that we all need to be continually going. And even as you were describing the verification handbook, just that that's for you, another way that you can exercise those muscles and, and be continuing your own path of, of domain. Yeah, knowledge. absolutely. So, yeah. Thank you so much for being a guest on teaching in higher ed. I hope it's just the first of many, cause it's been such an energizing and informative talk. Okay. Well, thank you. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to come back sometime. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. And thanks also to Mike for being such a funny, <laughs> engaging, challenging in the best way possible guest. I really appreciate it. And thanks to Hoda, who is a former guest who recommended Mike. And she said that Mahabali had also suggested him. So what a wonderful resource he is to us. If you'd like to make any comments on today's episode, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash 138. Feel free to join us on the Teaching in Higher Ed Slack channel if you want to have some more private conversations about the things that come up on episodes or that are just of concern to us in higher ed. You can join at teachinginhighered.com slash slack. There's a quick form for you to fill out and we'll get you added to the community. And if you have yet to rate the show this would be a wonderful time to do it that just helps expand our community even more and keep great guests like Mike coming into our ecosystem so we know about them and more people know about the show. You can do that using whatever podcast service it is that you use to listen to the show. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.